Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Hey, Life Church, welcome to our online service. It is such a joy to be together in this digital space. Hey, if you're new or if you've been visiting us or if you have been just kind of checking us out online for the last little bit, we would love to meet you and get in contact with you and see how we can best love and serve you as someone who is possibly looking in or wanting to join as an official member of our community. So won't you check us out online at www.lightsandiego.com. You can click on either our Encinitas tab or our downtown tab uh, as we have two churches, one in Encinitas and one in downtown San Diego. And you can find ways in which you can connect through open tables or other events such as worship nights or prayer rooms or parallel society and a bunch of other stuff that we have going on in the life of our church. And so jump online, click on one of the locations that is closest to you, and if necessary, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to be in contact with you and see how we can love, serve, and get you plugged in to the life of our church. We are entering into a new preaching series for the next about 12 or 13 weeks, and we're going to be studying in the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to jump into that in a bit, but uh, you know, stay in touch online. See, we have a Bible reading plan that's going to come out next week, reading through the book of Ephesians. And so you can see all of those details come out on our social media and our online platforms. We're going to enter into a time of worship now, and so I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Uh, no matter where you are, if you're watching this in your bedroom, in the lounge, while you're driving the car, hopefully you're just listening and not watching, uh, I'm going to pray and just trust that the Holy Spirit would minister to your heart. And I just encourage you, let this not be a moment where we just kind of listen to other people worshiping, but uh, lean in, sing, join us in uh, worshiping the Lord as we're scattered around our city and maybe even beyond if you're watching from out of town. Bless you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for this wonderful privilege of being able to call ourselves sons and daughters. And we just come before you now and we invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts to empower us, encourage us as we come to worship you. Now, I pray, Lord God, as we worship you throughout our city and beyond, that there would be a pleasing noise that would reach heaven and that you would receive all of the glory, all of the honor, and all of our worship that you are so worthy of. And so we enter into this time of worship now, looking to Jesus and glorifying the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the landscape of my life You don't rush through any season You always take your time A careful hand channel guide you take what's dead away and you prune what's running wild so be the governor of my heart tear the soil of my soul you want. 
Today we start a new preaching series looking at the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is a book written by the Apostle Paul and is found in our New Testament. Ephesians is a beautiful book that I'm so excited to dive into as a community for the next three or more months. And so put your seatbelts on, let's get ready, let's dive straight into the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible. We've we've kind of subtitled this series, New Life in Christ. As we've been following our theme for the year, 
is a theme of entering into the garden. And we've just come off Easter weekend a few weeks back where we, on Good Friday, acknowledge the fact that the seed or Jesus went into the ground. And at Easter, on Easter Sunday, the seed sprouted up out of the ground. And now we are going to be looking at over the next three or so months, how we can have new life in Christ, how that seed not only sprouts through the ground, but then starts to blossom and flourish and have new life. And so my prayer for us as a community, as we dive into this next series, is that we would get really practical around how do we live our life in Christ as those who have been saved and redeemed and made new? How do we actually go about living the way of Jesus and practicing our discipleship? So if you've got your Bibles with me, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to start off together reading verse 1 and 2. We read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that, that opening uh, kind of few verses there. It could possibly read this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at or in San Diego. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A letter. This book of Ephesians is a letter that Pastor Paul writes to a church that he planted in a city called Ephesus. And he's writing to this church as someone who loves and adores this body of believers. And he addresses them as Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to the faithful saints at Ephesus, the faithful saints in San Diego. What I want to do is I want to give us a big picture of this kind of book of Ephesians and give us a little bit of an insight into the context from which these people receive this letter. Many people or theologians have called the book of Ephesians the constitution of the early church. I love that, the constitution of the early church, giving us instruction on how we should live. Many theologians have termed this book the crown jewel of the epistles. A beautiful book, a beautiful letter written to this church from which we can gain so much knowledge, insight, joy, and life. If we look at the author of this book, his name, as I've said already, is Paul. If you know the story, Paul, his name was formerly Saul, and he had this radical conversion. Paul was a man who was set on murdering Christians because of their belief in Jesus. And he has this conversion where he goes from being a murderer of Christians to the greatest missionary of all time. And so Pastor Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. What we have is this city of Ephesus. And I want to kind of look at some of the details and give us some contextual information about the city and as I do this, I want us to have in our minds uh, almost a comparison developing between Ephesus and San Diego. And I want you to see how similar our two cities are. This is not only a letter written to a church 2,000 years ago, but I firmly believe that this is a letter written to us today in San Diego. It is just as relevant. And its instruction and encouragement and even correction at time is just as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago as it is to us today. And so we have Ephesus. Ephesus is a major financial center, not only in Asia Minor, but also in the entire ancient world. It had the most important seaport 
which is interesting. It was on the coast. It had a, a harbor, a natural harbor, and it was the most important seaport on the western coast of Asia. This is an interesting fact because it meant that people from many different nations ended up living in or staying in either temporary or permanently in Ephesus, much like San Diego. This was a multicultural city, a city that had people that were either visiting or had relocated from all over the known world. Those who were there for economic gain, those who were there for other reasons, the good life to say, but very similar to San Diego. And a little caveat just off the bat, what we see is a multicultural city. And what is interesting to me, and what we're going to find out in a little bit when we start talking about the church in Ephesus, is that the church in Ephesus flourished. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, flourished in the church in Ephesus. Interesting fact to me is that the gospel flourishes and the body of Christ seems to flourish in a multicultural city where the gospel has a multicultural expression and finds life when people from different nations and different tribes and different tongues come together under the name of Jesus. Let's continue. Ephesus was home to the Panlothian Games, uh, which is surpassed only in grandeur by the Olympic Games in Athens. So sport and activity and uh, the outdoors was of high priority. Uh, Ephesus was a city where people could look and, I quote, look on the pageant and panorama of the Greco-Roman life and all of its brilliance. This was a great city to live in. All of the bells and whistles and everything that a first world city would have to offer, we could find in Ephesus. We know that San Diego is called America's finest city. Ephesus was home to the worship of the fertility goddess Artemis, or otherwise known as Diana. Uh, she was the embodiment of sexuality and the embodiment of sexual lust. And so sex, sexuality, body image were really important in the city. Uh, the city had an amphitheater that could seat about 24,000 people that would host music events or like kind of outdoor gatherings, much like uh, the example we have at the Snapdragon. The center, it was a center of business, of politics. It was also a center of religious um, pluralism. And within this context, what we see is one of the most influential churches in all of Christian history start to birth itself. The, the church was born during a brief period by the Apostle Paul, where he came in as a visitor, and he had his co-laborers, you may have heard of Priscilla and Aquila, they were with him. And so you had this kind of dream team planting pastors, where Paul and Priscilla and Aquila set out to plant a church. After Paul leaves, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they care for this young congregation. Paul recognizes while he's out of town the strategic importance of the city and the influence that the city can have around the world. And so he returns and he spends two and a half years pastoring and loving and teaching in Ephesus, which is the longest period that he spends in any church uh, in his ministry life. Unfortunately, uh, he ended up having to flee the city because his preaching of Jesus began to disrupt the local economy. And I love that. The preaching of Jesus began started to disrupt the local econ economy. Both people's individual lives were transformed, but culture at large and the economy started to take on a different shape. Why? 
Well, one of the biggest industries in Ephesus was the making and selling of the miniature statues of the sex goddess Artemis or Diana. Uh, as people came to faith in Jesus, they naturally stopped buying these statues in which they would use for worship practices. As sales dropped, riots broke out, forcing Paul to flee the city. So the preaching of the gospel had a radical shift in people's lives and hearts and also in with the way in which they spent their money, their worship practices, and the economy at large. So Paul leaves Timothy, his son in the Lord becomes pastor of this church and the apostle Paul becomes the part uh, sorry the apostle John later becomes the pastor of this church uh, when Timothy dies John writes the fourth gospel we know the gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John John writes the gospel of John while he is the pastor in Ephesus one of the long-standing members of this awesome church was Mary, the mother of Jesus. So can you imagine what it would have been like to be in this church? You've had Paul and Timothy and Priscilla and Aquila, and now you have Jesus's mom, Mary, in your church. Can you imagine what, I don't know, Christmas Eve service would have been like in this church? What a church, what an experience. Just the reality and the felt experience of what it would have been like to be a disciple in this community. Founded by the Apostle Paul, nurtured by Priscilla and Aquila and Timothy, pastored by John, and then home to Jesus' mother, Mary. I love the book of Ephesians. It, it, it's divided into two kind of chunks, six chapters long, three chapters the first half, three chapters the second half. The first three chapters, Paul starts to talk about who we are in Christ. He tells us our position, and then he goes on to tell us how we should now respond as those or how we should live as those who are in Christ. He tells us about our practice. And so you have this letter written to this awesome church where Paul, as their founding pastor, sends a a note in to tell them and remind them of who they are in Christ and then give them instruction on how to live. And that's what we want to do for the next 12 weeks is talk about who we are in Christ, our identity as sons and daughters, and then give us practical ways in how we can live out our disciple and our position. And so Paul writes this letter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's fast forward a little bit in the story. After this letter has been written, 40 years later, around 90 AD, the apostle John writes what is now known as the book of Revelation. It's the last book in our Bible. From an encounter John has with Jesus on an island as he is in exile, Jesus speaks to him clearly and he gives John seven messages or messages for seven different churches that had been planted. And so we have uh, John having an encounter with Jesus, receiving information from Jesus as a message to take back or send back via this letter to the seven different churches. Now, in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus speaks of the churches. Decades later, and and he has so much to say about what has ended up, uh, you know, and how they have ended up and who they are and how they're practicing their faith. Now, what we have is this church in Ephesus, And then 40 years later, this awesome church in Ephesus, and then 40 years later, a message coming to them from Jesus himself about their current state. So they're an awesome church doing everything right, 
and then Jesus sends him a message. Now, I don't know if any of you have clicked on those kind of pop-ups that, that seem to come up on our social media or news platforms where it's like the where are they now um, kind of uh, adverts that pop up. More often than not, I'm a child of the 90s, so more often than not, there'll be like a, a 90s child movie star or, or someone that was famous during those times and you kind of haven't heard about them since then. And... Uh, you kind of click on it and you find out where are they now? What, are they, how, what does their life look like now, you know, decades later? And more often than not, they're kind of a mess and it's an you know, interesting read. That is basically what, <coughs> pardon me, what Revelation 2 and 3 is. We have this church plant in Ephesus and it's kind of like a where are they now insight, you know, four decades later. It's kind of that kind of moment. So the church is around 40 years old. It's a beautiful church. They're working hard. They're loving the Bible. They've grown. They're big. They're an influential church. There's a lot of positive history with awesome founding pastors and Jesus' mom and like a whole bunch of, you know, just a beautiful heritage. They were a church that was held in high esteem by all the other churches of the area. There's long-serving history and loving Jesus faithfully. Uh, they'd also had a leadership dream team, as I mentioned. Uh, what else, you know, could, what could Jesus say other than just like, well done and, and, and keep going? Well, let's read what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. He says to John, write to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor and your endurance and, the, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. Jesus just starts to praise them, saying, well done. You know, I know what you've done. I know your works. He says, I know your works, or I know your deeds. Or another translation says, I know all the things that you do. And Jesus is beginning with these words of, commendation of glowing praise, just like what a church, the kind of church that experts would have flocked to, to kind of pick up principles of church success. Uh, you know, there would have been podcasts about this church in Ephesus so that other churches could learn about the best practice of how to do church well. Uh, celebrity pastors with nice sneakers, they would have been trying to copy this church and kind of sing the worship songs that they wrote. The church was buzzing with doing. They had programs and courses and events and outreaches, you name it. They were an awesome church. They had all the kinds of ministries and programs going on that we would aspire to. Uh, it, it was not a comfortable social club either. You know, all of its members were actively involved, all working for the advancement of God's kingdom and the gospel. And so from the outside looking in, you'd be like, that is a great church with like real discipleship and awesome people. Now, Jesus says, I know your hard work. He's emphasizing here that they have like strenuous and exhausting labor, like they're spending themselves for God's kingdom and, and they're counting the cost of that. And they're pushing themselves to see the kingdom of God advance. They're doing it diligently and conscientiously. And he says, I know that you have persevered. 
It's emphasizing the fact that there is this inner attitude of long-suffering and patient endurance as they give their lives and their families and their resources over to Christ for the advancement of the kingdom. They had come face-to-face with relentless opposition to their faith. They were resisting the pressures of the emperor and the cults. They were not bowing their knees to Caesar as Lord. And, you know, Jesus says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. Wow, they, 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 they haven't grown weary in, in, in serving Jesus. Jesus says you cannot tolerate evil people. The, the, the Ephesian disciples, they were committed to purity of life and purity of doctrine. They were well-versed in the scriptures and committed to orthodox faith. They were not settling for an easy way of indifference and compromise or in matters of morality and ethics. They were, they were holding firm to the teachings of Jesus. Friends, the point for now is that the Ephesian church was committed to orthodoxy. They were committed to knowing and defending the faith. They were a beautiful church. They guarded the gospel as Timothy had told them to do. They would not settle for feel-good theologizing and self-help. And so so Jesus' words of commendation would leave us wondering, can anything bad be coming out of Ephesus? Could anything go wrong in this church? John Stott summarizes the condition of the church by saying that Ephesus was energetic in their service, patient in their suffering, and orthodox in their faith. What could go wrong in a church like this? Well, the message of Jesus continues in verse 4, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. You do not have this. Yet you do have this. You hate the principles of the Nicolodians, so they hate um, heresy, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, and will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I have this against you, Jesus says. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You've lost your first love. Jesus sees the real conditions of our souls. He sees through all of the activity, all of the patience, all of the orthodoxy and the commitment to practicing good faith, and he tells the church that they are flawed at their very center. Wow, what a sobering thought. The church has everything going for them except the one thing that Jesus deserves, which is their love. Revelation 2 verse 4, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So what is first love? First love is the love experienced between two people as they all in love. Uh, first love is the love that we had for Jesus when he first breaks into our lives and he wins us over and, and, and he wins us by and with his love. First love is the love that we have for him when we're attending a conference, uh, you know, whether it be in the mountains or in the, uh, at, the, at the beach. Uh, first love is when we are willing to spend ourselves and extend ourselves for the one we love. And Jesus says that, all of their hard work, their patient endurance, and the orthodoxy, orthodoxy that they are practicing in Ephesus, within all of that, they were no longer in love with him. Their affection and their intimacy towards Christ 
was gone. Friends, throughout the Bible, our relationship with God is always likened to a relationship between a bride and a groom. In the Old Testament, for example, God speaks of having found Israel and taken her as his bride, as his chosen people. But he uses this imagery of a marriage, of a, of a bride. He pleads his, uh, so he pledges his love to her and, and called her into a love relationship with him. Yet Israel begins to flirt with other lovers and, and with other gods and with other people. And soon Israel was more in love with these other gods than with God, the creator himself. Israel was more in love with materialism or comfort or entertainment or apathy or success or financial security. So they started to worship these other gods. I wonder, how much does this sound like us? How much does this sound like the culture and the life in San Diego? See, Israel kept going through the external forms of devotion to Yahweh, church on Sunday, you know, serving in the church, giving to missions, small groups, all of which are amazing and, and celebrated by Jesus in this letter. But they were no longer in love with him. Over and over again, we hear God plead with Israel to come back. In, in Jeremiah 2, he says, I remember the loyalty of your youth, the love, your love as a bride, how you followed me. See, I remember that first love. And, but he goes on to say, what fault did your ancestors find in me that they went so far away from me? Friends, can you feel the lover's pain? Just the, this angst of, what did I do wrong? Please come back. The New Testament also goes on to give this bride and groom analogy. We are Christ's bride. We are married to him and we are redeemed for intimacy with Jesus. And the whole book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that we're left with, the whole book builds up at its climax to the revealing of the bride of the Lamb or the bride of Jesus or the church being married to Christ. In Revelation 19, verse 9, and then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb, the marriage feast of Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, for I am this is jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. He's talking about the church here. But just as Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpents, we can also be led astray from our sincere and pure devotion and intimacy with the God the Father. That is what happened to the church here in Ephesus. They had fallen out of pure and simple devotion. They had fallen out of affection. They had fallen out of intimacy and they had abandoned the love that they had at first. You might be thinking, but Lord, I, I'm working hard for you and I'm, I'm coming to church. I know, says Jesus, but you've lost your first love. Lord, I'm fighting for truth. I'm being strong in the workplace. I'm not kind of practicing the practices of my co-workers and succumbing to uh, immoral acts. I, I know, thank you, but you've lost your first love. Lord, I, I'm, I'm on the front lines. I'm securing beachheads of the kingdom. I'm praying. I'm crying out for revival in our city. Thank you, Jesus would say, but... You've lost your attentiveness to me, You've, you, your tenderness, the extravagance of your first love. I'm serving you, I'm giving, I'm, thank you, but you've lost your first love. So how does it happen? How do we lose 
our first love. Earl Palmer, I think, summarizes this brilliantly. He says, the Ephesus problem, the losing of our first love, the Ephesus problem happens quietly and by gradual, imperceptible shifts of focus. He goes on to say, a man or woman is first united with the Christian church because of having discovered and believed in Jesus Christ and his love. After a few years of being a Christian, that person becomes a leader in the church with a very heavy set of responsibilities for fellowship. But something happens along the way. That person who, because of giftedness and hard work, may now stand at the vortex of church politics and decision-making experiences a subtle shift in style of life. That person is adrift as a disciple and finds himself or herself motivated and nourished by the organization or by controversy or by ambition to hold power. The first love has been replaced while perhaps no one was aware of the replacement. The first love has been abandoned and in its place is the starchy, high cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the human soul. Palmer then makes this profound insight. He says, the irony of this latter condition or the Ephesus syndrome is that Christians become totally preoccupied and fascinated with themes and goals which would have never won him or her in the first place to have joined the church. Arguments over fine doctrinal points, distinctions in polity, exoteric giftedness, etc. How can it happen to us? He says it happens to marriages, it happens to human friendships, and it happens to the life of a disciple. So, what do we do? What Jesus tells us, and he says to the Ephesians in verse 5, Remember then how far you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. Jesus exhorts us to do three things. He says, remember, repent, and then redo. Remember, repent, redo. Firstly, remember. Jesus calls the Ephesians to remember. Remember your first love. Remember what it was like at first. Remember. The, the, the Greek word here is actually keep on remembering. It's like a continual process. He's saying never forget Never stop reminding yourselves of those butterflies, of that excitement of first falling in love. Go back and remember, friends, when and where that flame in your life started to grow faint then. Consider, you know, where was the turning point, those subtle shifts where my relationship with Jesus started to become more about activity and less about love. Go back to the time when your love for Jesus was a burning passion acknowledge, remember. He then says, repent. Now that word repent means stopping and turning around, a, a radical U-turn, a, a complete shift of focus back to Jesus. Turning involves practically changing schedules, changing our habits, uh, changing our commitments, all in order to restore intimacy. Think about it. If for you the greatest uh, moment or the greatest season of intimacy that you experienced with Jesus was when you were waking up early and reading the Bible. And, the, and as that stopped, intimacy with Jesus has started to faint. Uh, you know, what, what, is, what are the things, what are the, how should we change our schedules or our habits or our commitments in order to restore intimacy? That's turning. But repenting also involves confessing that we are in love with other lords. 
confessing that we have given attention to sex or power or comfort or luxury, confess that we are worshipping our work or our family or our kids, confess that success and financial security are more important than simply loving Jesus and turn our hearts back towards him. And thirdly, return or, 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 or redo. Go back. Go back and do the things that we did at first. If you were most in love with Jesus when you like spent 10 minutes or one hour a day praying, or when you did prayer walks, or when you met with a small group of people, whatever it was for you, listen to worship music on the way to, you know, whatever it looked like for you, return to the things that you did at first when you first fell in love. That's how we restore romance and marriage, isn't it? I know being married to Caitlin that kind of the way back to winning her heart and exciting her again is to you know, take her out for dinner dates and, you know, write little love notes. She loves love notes and I don't, I'm not very good at writing them. But, you know, you kind of do these things to, as an expression of love and commitment to your lover. You, you return to the moments or the rhythms or the practices that took place that nurtured and birthed that relationship into life. I'll ask you this, this as you listen to this. You know, can you hear your divine lover calling I believe you would say things like, you used to listen to my voice. You used to take time to be still before me and seek my face and enjoy my company. You used to open yourself up to my word daily. Nothing would get in your way. You used to not complicate my commandments. You used to look at me and, and take my instruction at face value and you found freedom in obeying me and living life with me. You used to weep over those who did not know me and pray and contend for them. You used to realize you cannot make it on your own and you'd throw yourself in reckless abandon towards me. Friends, Jesus is calling us to do whatever it takes to restore first love. Nothing else satisfies us but him and his love and nothing else, friends, satisfies him but us and our love. And Jesus makes a wonderful promise to those who conquer, to those who remember, repent, return. Revelation 2, he goes on to say, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He takes us back to the garden. We spoke about this on Easter. You can go back on our online services and listen to our Easter service, but he takes us back to the tree of life. The tree of life is found in the first pages of the Bible and also in the last. It is there in the first creation in the middle of the garden of Eden where we, man and God are enjoying intimacy and friendship. And then it's there again in the new creation, in the garden-like city of God, as he restores all things. See, in the first creation, the tree of life represents all the goodness of life that God longs to share with those who love him. And in the first creation, because of sin, the way to the tree of life gets blocked. In the new creation, the blocks are removed because of the blood of Jesus. And by the death of Jesus, the way back to the tree of life has been opened. And it turns out, friends, that the tree of life is Jesus himself. And so friends, this is not about pragmatic practice. This is about more of God in your life, returning to our first love. It's about more presence, more power, more love, more peace, more security, more joy. In John 15, as the Father has loved me, this is Jesus speaking to us. He's saying, so I have loved you. And he instructs us, abide in my love, remain in my love, stay in my love, return in my love. 
He goes on to say, these things I've spoken to you, he's telling us, I'm telling you to remain in my love, to love me and accept my love. He's saying, these things I've spoken to you, why? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is an invitation into life and joy and peace and love. The final thing I want to point out is this last phrase in in Ephesians 6, where Paul closes out this beautiful letter to the church with an encouragement to love Jesus purely and simply. He says, love the Lord your God with an incorruptible love. Friends, reading the book of Ephesians should increase our love for Jesus. And so what we're going to do, starting on Monday, so if you're watching this this Sunday, starting tomorrow or whenever you're watching, we're starting on Monday, a six-day reading plan. Ephesians is six um, chapters long. And we are going to spend every day this week reading one chapter of this book. If you were to read the entire book of Ephesians, you could read it in 20 minutes. So you could read it before breakfast. But we're just going to take one chapter a day, starting on Monday, ending on Saturday. And by the time we come to next Sunday's message, as we continue post this introduction message, all of us as a body would have read the book of Ephesians in its entirety. And I want to tell you, reading this beautiful book will increase our love for Jesus It will increase our joy and I believe will help return us back to our first love. So to close off our time together today, what I want to do is just give us an opportunity once this uh, time together ends. I want to encourage you to take out a journal or a piece of paper. And I want you to do three things. Remember, repent, and return. For remember, just practice listening prayer. Ask God to speak to you and remind you of the love you had at first and remind you of how and when that love started to fade. And then repent. You can write these things down. Acknowledge and write down maybe the other loves that have taken the place of the role of Jesus in your life. And then return. Write down some practical ways and how you're going to return back to enjoying Jesus and practicing getting back into the space of first love and loving him so that we can have life to the full and that his joy may be in us and our joy may be full. So we're going to remember, we're going to repent, and then we're going to return back to our first love so we can have more of God in our life. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that we have been chosen and we have been pursued by you as Father of all, Your grace and mercy and love has been lavished upon us as a free gift, not based on what we have done, but based on what Jesus has done. And I pray, Lord God, that we would not only be recipients of that love, but you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us so that we would be able to return back and ignite a flame and a passion of love towards Jesus where we would experience joy and intimacy and peace in life. And so we open ourselves up to receive from the Spirit correction, insight, and encouragement into how we can best live out our life as disciples of Jesus, loving you and enjoying you. I pray for our friends all over the city who are listening to this, that, that we would not be find ourselves feeling guilty or discouraged, maybe as we start to acknowledge some of the things that we need to repent of, but rather that we be encouraged, that in Christ we can repent 
and we can be made new, we can turn and we can live an entirely new and different life. And so we lay ourselves down at the feet of the cross, knowing that your victory on the cross has washed away all of our sin and shame and guilt, and that we have the freedom to enjoy Jesus, live life with him, and love him. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Thank you.